Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. So before we go on to our guest today, and it's a really lovely story and a bit of a tearjerker as well, I just have a little announcement to make. After 98 episodes and two years and four months to be exact, the Big Travel Podcast has a sponsor. It's not something we've actually pursued before, but we have found a company, they're called WeCure, and they arrange for medical treatments abroad. And it's something I feel fits nicely with the podcast because of the travel element. I've also always been intrigued about health health treatments abroad and I know it's something that's on the rise and indeed I do know actually quite a few people who've travelled for dental treatment in fact people in the family I know who have done that cosmetic treatment and also fertility and miscarriage treatment some of you might know already that I had five miscarriages before I had my two children and I had a lot of medical treatment for this and because of this I became a big part of some online support groups and a lot of those people travelled abroad for, for treatment and actually Um, It went really well, although they were going through you know, some reasonable challenging times because they were having fertility and miscarriage treatment, they actually got a great little holiday out of it and got to know parts of the world that they hadn't been before. So it's something I've always been quite intrigued about. In fact, talking of the miscarriage treatment, I'm actually going to have my miscarriage doctor on soon as he's a world specialist in the field, a really interesting guy. But he has a jaw-dropping travel story that he just casually told me during the consultation at the end of a consultation about the miscarriages. And honestly, my mouth was literally wide open with shock at his story that he just casually dropped in. So I'm going to have him on the podcast. But anyway, I, I digress, as I often do. We Cure uh, are now going to give us a little bit of money for every episode. And like a lot of podcasts uh, do this already, I'll be reading, reading out a 30-second message from them at the beginning of the show. And there'll also be a code you can use in case you or anyone you know wants to use their services. They'll give you a great deal. Now, obviously, it's going to be very helpful to have some money for our work. I love doing this show, but it does take up a lot of time and also costs money in terms of monthly subscriptions for the podcast hosts. In equipment, I've bought two recorders, several lots of microphones. It didn't help that I left my microphones in Addis Ababa. Sounds like a great second album. Um, But yeah, I did leave my microphones in Ethiopia a a few months ago. I pay the lovely editor, Alex George, who does a wonderful job, does it edits so much better than I did for the first 30 or 40 episodes that I did on 
my own. Yeah, so it's going to be wonderful to be able to put some money into promoting the podcast on social media because the more downloads we get, the more I can persuade interesting people to come on and, you know, the, the, better, the better for all of us. Some podcasts go down the route of Patreon where they ask listeners to voluntarily donate to listen, but I wanted to keep it free for you. So I'm very pleased that we've got WeCure on board as a sponsor. It's not going to change anything. They have no influence in terms of guests or editorial input. It will still just be me nattering on in the usual manner with hopefully some brilliantly entertaining guests, which brings me nicely on to today's guest. First of all, I wanted to play this short clip from a video called Homeland Stories Searching for Pearls that's all about our guest today, Francesca. From birth to death, they were ill. So I always knew that their lives would be short. Mum made me angry. She was 47 when she died. She deserved to live life to the full. Everything I do is for them. I've been given lungs to breathe, so I breathe for my brother, sister and my mother. So let's give Francesca the full big travel podcast treatment. A chance encounter and some lost pearls led to Francesca Eyre, the owner of Chili Powder Ski Holidays in the French Alps, moving to the mountains. Growing up with two terminally ill siblings, she learned independence from a young age, and after losing her sister aged 16 and her mother aged 21, she felt the call of travel. As a part-time endurance athlete, a recent terrifying accident led to her memory being completely wiped for days and a very challenging recovery. But together with her husband, Paul, she's now opening a second chili powder in a beautiful village in Provence and sees participating in incredible endurance events as a mean to, as she says, breathe for those who no longer can. Francesca Eyre is on the Big Travel Podcast. Where are you right now, Francesca? So we're in my little piece of new heaven and we're in my our new house in Provence. So this is our new, our next chilli powder chapter, which is very exciting. So we're getting it ready at the moment and just, um, it's pop, it's been pouring with rain in the mountains for the last couple of weeks. So it was a little bit of an escape and excuse to paint. Describe the scene to me. What does it look like there? So we are on the edge of the Lubron National Park. Um, we've got, it's a very old house. It's 200 years old. And um, for me, it's a very non-touristy village. It's just basically got one little um, bar and one little tiny, tiny shop um, and a post office in the mairie. And only locals here, only 900 residents. Um, But we're right on the edge of lavender fields, um, thousands of vineyards, the mountains behind us. So it's incredibly beautiful. This sounds absolutely idyllic and the dream for many people. I want to go through your journey and how you got to this point, but I just watched, I just watched your wonderful video about your journey as to how you became this travel person. And honestly, you had me in tears. So why don't we start with that? Why don't we start with, I mean, I want to, I think the pearls are a significant turning point, but we have to explain why the pearls meant so much to you I think um I mean the pearls meant so much to me because they belonged to my mother 
and she died when I was 21. And um, I looked after her. She died of cancer and I gave up work and I looked after her as she was dying. Um, she died in my arms, very luckily, um, for both of us. And um, after that, I wore her pearls almost as a security blanket that you have when you're a child. So I wore them the whole time. I never took them off. I went to do a wedding. They disappeared at the wedding. And um, that, that was sort of kind of that at that time. I mean, I was very, very upset. And eventually they came back to me just before Christmas via a very bizarre way. Um, but I got them back. And the partner of the guy who had picked them up, he rang me and he said, I know Christmas is going to be tough for you because, you know, I've heard that these pearls mean a lot to you. Would you be interested in, as your chef, going to Morzine? I've got um, an acquaintance who needs a chef over Christmas. So I took the opportunity and fed my, my brothers, my siblings on Christmas Day, but flew out on Boxing Day. And that's how you ended up living in Morzine for how long now? Oh, 27 years. I mean, I should be about 99, I think, being in Morzine for that long. It's the longest place I've ever lived. But yes, 27 years. But you, this wasn't the first time you moved to France, was it? Um, no, yes. Um, when I was 16, my parents had a really nasty divorce. My father, being a lawyer, bless his little cotton socks, uh, paying for, I was in a little private school. I'm no longer paying for Francesca's education. She's not working properly. She's out. And so I had to leave school at 16. And I think my mother went, oh, my God, I've got a 16-year-old who's not finished her education. What the hell am I going to do with her? So she very brilliantly found me an au pair job in Paris. So I went to live in Paris when I was 16, and I was au pairing um, one and then two and then three children altogether. 16 is very young to leave home. It's actually the age I left home as well. I came from Spain to live in England. So I know how young that is. I also know it can be an exciting age to leave home. Was it an exciting time for you in Paris then? No, no, I would never, ever, ever do it to my children. I'd never, I mean, I was fine. I had, I grew up with two Tamil siblings. So I was very, very independent. So I was absolutely fine in independence. So, um, it, you know, I was very lucky in that way. But I was very naive. And now looking back on it, I think, God, Francesca, you didn't go and see half the museums that you should have seen, the concerts that you could have gone to, the bars that you could have visited. I was a little bit square and a little bit, you know, I was a little bit sensible, too sensible probably. So now I look back at it and I just think, there's no way I'd do that to my children. That's really interesting because some people ask me like why I moved out of home so young and I've always been very close to my parents. They're still together. You know, they're probably my best friends. And actually, I think almost because I had the confidence because we were so close, I had the confidence to move early. And growing up in an international area where there are a lot of British people, expats as they want to be called or immigrants as they actually are, um, a lot of people went back to the UK. A lot of people went back when they were 11, 12, 13 and went back to boarding school and things like that. So for me, it wasn't unusual. But now I look back and now I've got children. I moved to a different country, although it was my home country. I, I wasn't familiar with it and I went to a place I'd never been before just a month after my 16th birthday and you and you are young aren't you you're you're more young and naive than you think you are you'll think you're grown up at that age but you're just not at all 
moving country is a big is a big jump at that age. Yeah, moving country is a big jump. I think you know my parents were going through such a nasty divorce. I think for them it was better that I wasn't involved in watching what was going on. So it was sort of good timing on my mother's behalf. My sister was also getting very very ill. In fact, she died when I was in Paris. So it was the most incredible experience. I was I was looking after his um, mother was a cookery writer. And they were the ones that said to my mother, right, Francesca has got a flair at cooking. She needs to become a chef. And that's why I then trained to become a chef. You mentioned your sister was dying at the time when you were a 16-year-old in Paris. I mean, obviously, that must have been utterly, utterly heartbreaking. But you come from a, a family with cystic fibrosis. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, she has cystic fibrosis. The only the only thing was, I grew up always knowing that they were going to die at at a young age. So it's not like somebody has been involved in an accident um, and that you don't know it's going to happen. If you're brought up always knowing um, that every day is a precious one, then um, then I think you can mentally prepare yourself for it better when the time actually comes. So two of your siblings had cystic fibrosis. Yeah, that's right. So Joe died when she was 16 and, um, well, she's 15, 16, 15, 15, 16 years old and her 16th year is how they said. And um, Nick died when he was 34. I have one other younger brother, number four, um, Robert, who lives in New Zealand yeah, sadly, the other side of the world, but he doesn't have cystic fibrosis. Is that just, I don't know enough about it, is that just a, a, a genetic uh, glitch? Is it just a chance? Did your parents know that they would have children with cystic fibrosis? Well, I think this will, this is where it becomes quite scary. There are one in 20 people are carriers of the cystic fibrosis gene. And then you have to be with somebody else who has the cystic fibrosis gene. And then there is a one in four chance that you give birth to a child with cystic fibrosis. Presumably that could have been you as well with your children. You've got three children. Yeah. So we decided, we just, I know that I'm a carrier of cystic fibrosis. Paul, we could have had him tested, but I personally, having had siblings with cystic fibrosis, I wouldn't have terminated a CF, a CF baby. So we didn't want to know beforehand if Paul was a carrier or not. We decided we would wait and see. So they're tested as soon as they're born. None of mine have cystic fibrosis, thank goodness. And um, now they've got to make themselves um, have tests later on to see whether they're carriers or not and then make their own decisions. But I won't have them tested to see if they're carriers now. I think, again, it's a personal choice. It's up to them to do it later. So that that period in Paris when your sister passed away, that must have been incredibly hard being away from home. It, it was really hard. But I think because it was so horrific at home, it was easier being away than actually being being there. And when you're busy, and I was working hard, and I was looking after the children, so in fact, it just completely, you know, your mind is thinking of other things. So yes, it was extremely hard. And um, 
But in a way, I'm glad I wasn't there. Having to watch it every day would have been horrific. So the family you're staying with, you're staying with this family in Paris, not going to the museums like you think you would. But then again, what 16-year-old does, does go to museums? The part You should have gone to the parties. You really should have gone to the parties. The museum's not so much at that age. I'm sure you've done them all now. But the grandmother suggested that you had a talent for cooking. And you went to Dublin, I believe, to to train as a chef. Yes. The grandmother said to my parents that um, I had a flair for cooking, that I should um, should train to become a chef. So we looked at the Cordon Bleu School in Paris. And then at the time, it was about £3,000, my equivalent of £3,000. And then we looked at London, and that was about £2,000. And then we looked at Dublin, and that was £1,000. And because my father had stopped all financial help for me, mum begged him, and Dublin was the cheaper option. So I went and trained in Dublin. What was that like moving to Dublin? I love Dublin. It's a great city. Please tell me you went to a few parties in Dublin. I did. And I Dublin, I always said to Paul, when I first met Paul, if things don't work out in France... I'm moving back to Dublin. I loved Dublin. It's the most passionate. People are gorgeous, generous, just a fantastic city. I love anecdotes on the on the Big Travel Podcast and stories. So tell me a, a real standout memory memory from your time in Dublin. Oh, blimey. Well, I I used to I was very, very lucky. I trained as a chef and then I worked under an amazing chef called Mary O'Sullivan at the time who did a lot of big private parties and catering and things like that. So we would um, cook in these beautiful stately homes. At the time, Ireland um, was running out of money and a lot of the stately homes were going bankrupt. So a way that they could cover some of their bills was to invite people into their houses to have dinner and to see the stately house with the owners. So it was something called Hidden Ireland. So Mary and I used to cook in these stunning stately homes. Um, and uh, one, we have, I can remember once going to have to up to Dublin about 40 minutes away to go and buy a lobster. And we came down and I was with, not with Mary that time, I was with a vegetarian chef. And we got the, she wanted the, um, the lady that we were chefing for wanted hot lobster. So we got our pot of hot water ready. We had stroked the lobster's head to put the lobster asleep. We'd put the lobster in the freezer to put the lobster asleep because the other chef was vegetarian and we had to do everything very kindly. And um, we got to the pot of boiling water and realized that the pot of boiling water was too small, but the guests were all sitting at the table. So we had to put the lobster head first in with the tail thrashing around So we had two female chefs in the kitchen, floods of tears over cooking a lobster. (laughs) Oh, I can imagine. That's uh, I don't eat meat, but I do eat I do eat fish. But things like that, they just do break my heart. They just you can see you're a chef. So obviously, I'm guessing you eat everything. But you can see like how easy it is to become, you know, vegan, actually, almost when you think about things like that. Don't you think? Yeah, (laughs) it was very funny. I mean, we were pathetic. And then we had to serve um, this lobster at, at, um, at, you know, wiping our makeup free and um, <laughs> trying to look as though we weren't crying chefs in the kitchen. So let's go back. So you got, went from you went um, on from Dublin 
and then ended up working as a chef in did you come back to England at that point well what happened was I was working as a chef in Dublin everything was fine everything was great mum was then diagnosed with cancer Um, I had to give up work I spent six months looking after her and she decided that she wanted she would try anything and they told her she only had a few months to live she then heard from somebody about doing a macrobiotic diet So she said that, could I chef for her and do a macrobiotic diet for her, which I did. She then sadly died. And I had two siblings that were under 18. So my stepfather, he, my parent, my mother and my stepfather, they weren't married because there was no divorce in Ireland. So I had these two kids in Ireland um, under 18. And financially, I couldn't look after them. Mum, you know, left us with a debt, bless her heart. Um, So I had to take them back to their father, who by that stage, sadly, was estranged. Um, So took them back to England and they went to live with their dad in England and I moved to London. Do you know what? What a cruel blow to have your mum pass away of cancer with the, you know, having dealt with the uh, with having two terminally ill children as a, as a parent now it just doesn't bear thinking about does it I think it's the stress I think I'm I'm quite sure stress will um, link to other diseases if, if you know she had so much stress in her life my mother that I think you know one thing after another meant that she couldn't you know her immune system was down yeah um, and then and, and talking about food in that sense you know what you feed yourself and nourish yourself with must really, you know, take on paramount importance. I mean, unfortunately, it's not everything, is it? You know, do you, do you, as a chef, do you consider those sort of things? Uh, 200%. I mean, I know mum never had time to eat properly. And because she was having to do physio on the two children, um, so she would grab a Mars bar and shove a Mars bar down her throat um, before having to do physio on them. I got rheumatoid arthritis. I got uh, the half a thyroid. So I'm really careful with what I eat. And when I was first diagnosed, I was very, very careful, came off all sorts of gluten, all sorts of things, was incredibly careful. Now I'm back on everything. But I didn't drink any alcohol for nine years because it used to seem to flare up my arthritis and things. So no, I totally think what you eat really affects your body. Describe, I'm hypothyroid. Do you say hypo or hypo? Hyper, I'm hypo, actually. I developed it. That's so hypo, for anyone who doesn't know, is the underactive thyroid. And I developed it when I was 21, which was a really horrible experience because one of the main things is that is you, you put on weight without sort of really doing anything to put on weight. And I remember going on all sorts of diets and trying to exercise and just being exhausted. I put on about three stone in six weeks. Prior to that, I'd been modeling, you know, swimwear and you know, doing a bit of part, quite a bit of part-time modeling. I was on the stage and performing a lot and I just got very, very sick very quickly. And actually back when I was uh, 21, there was no internet. So you just couldn't Google it. Um, and it took a long time to get diagnosed. And I know that's a, a, an experience with a, with a lot of people as well. No, I got, um, I suddenly, I was doing a lot of exercise at the time and I was doing a lot of racing and things. And I got very, 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 very thin. That, but, and everybody kept on saying to me, will you stop doing so much exercise? And I kept on saying, I'm eating, I'm eating so much. And that's how I was diagnosed. It was just, I'd got so thin. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a nasty illness. It really is. And a lot of the time with women, you know, unfortunately, they go undiagnosed for a while, because if you're particularly with over underactive, if you're tired and putting on weight, people will say, oh, well, that's just your age or whatever. But I was 21. So talking of exercise, you moved to Morzine, which is in the French Alps, a beautiful place. I have been there. I had a great press trip there with Roxy, you know, the um, the, the snowboarding and surfy people and uh, they do fabulous clothes and things. And I went there and I learned to snowboard in Morzine, actually, a beautiful place. But so you've you now tell us about tell us about chili powder. So um, I went to Morzine um, through the pearls, arrived in Morzine, fell in love with Morzine, um, decided to sell up my little business that I had in London. So sold that and decided that my heart was in Morzine. So came out to Morzine. Also having had number two brother with cystic fibrosis, the mountains are really, really good for your lungs and cystic fibrosis. So I brought him out with me, left him at a chalet com- with a chalet company and said to the chalet company, look, please, can he work with you? I'll leave you a few a few wages for him. Can you please give him a job? So he stayed in Morzine and I spent that year traveling backwards and forwards from London, then sold the business and then came to Morzine. So the first year I was working for another company. I was their um, resort manager and um, then met Paul. So met Paul, straight away knew that Paul eventually we would be together for a long time. Um, he was, he, I made him work for me. Um, we spent, he spent a long time um, walking me back to the house, saying goodnight, going back to his flat and going, bloody hell, when will I break this girl? Um, so we dated for a long time and then we decided that we wanted to set up a business together. And that was how Chili Powder was born. He is amazing at accounts and maths. So he's the mathematical side. And then I'm the front of house side. And uh, Chili Powder is, for those people who don't know... A ski company. We're a ski company in the in Morzine in the French Alps. So we started off with one chalet. Um, we then decided that renting a chalet was actually a bad investment that we would build... So we put a plan together. The banks laughed at us. Um, We tried to get investors. The investors laughed at us. And eventually, um, some um, people that we knew said that they wanted to invest in us. So they put up half the money and then we could raise half the money from the bank. And at the time, it was a one million pounds so that we could then build our hotel. Wonderful. So you have a hotel now in Morzine. And what's it like? I've always been very curious about going to the Alps in the summer. I have been as a child, but I haven't been as an adult. And I'm always just just the, the vision of, you know, beautiful wildflowers and, you know, twirling around in a large skirt. I've obviously seen the sound of music too many times uh, through the mountains. What is it like in the summer? Describe it to me. Well, if you ask Paul and I which part of the year we prefer... Both of us would say the summer. The summer is so beautiful. It takes on a very, very... Guests are very, very different. In the winter, skiing's expensive. They have to get out at certain lifts. They have to be back at certain time. They have to achieve certain amount. Where during the summer, everybody's a lot more relaxed. 
Um, that people were quite happy just to sit around at the hotel and be in the garden and read, or you go whitewater rafting, you can play tennis, paraponting, um, mountain biking. You have something called a multi-pass, which is two euros per person per day. And this pass allows you to do masses of activities um, for just two euros. So in fact, it's a relatively reasonable holiday when skiing's an expensive holiday. That sounds wonderful. I, I really I really would love to go in the uh, in the, the summer months, definitely, because I'm not a skier. I've tried a few times and found it very scary. I can snowboard now, but I, I don't I haven't done it for so long. I'd like to maybe maybe try and give that another chance. But if you weren't a part of a, a skiing family growing up, then um you kind of like you know, you have to, learning as an adult is a little bit more complicated sometimes, I think. Yeah, very tough, very tough. What you have to do is when you're going down a mountain, you have to sing. So then your brain isn't thinking about what the hell you're going down. So you just sing to yourself. <laughs> That's exactly when you, your brain's thinking, what the hell are you going down? I remember thinking the very first time I'm standing on very slippy things down this very slippy slope. I'm on a mountain. This doesn't feel right. But when you do start to uh, to get it, you know, it's really it really is exhilarating. I think it's one of the things about skiing, because I do ask myself, you know, you are putting on metal planks on your feet going fast down a mountain. Why is it such a popular sport? But I think because you're going down a mountain, it is um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scenery. So you're concentrating on the scenery. You're concentrating on where you're going. You can eat eat good food because you're doing exercise so therefore you're not putting on masses of weight you cannot think about the email you need to reply to because you've got to concentrate on what you're doing so I think that's why people like it so much because they can mentally really switch off oh and the apres ski is just amazing isn't it have you have you taken advantage of the parties on the apres ski scene um, well, no, because we we work massively. But yes, we did. Yes, when we were younger, absolutely. No, the Apro ski is awesome, and it's um, yeah, it's all part of it. It's 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 great being able to have a beer up in the mountains before you hit the last slope to come down. I remember some very strong um, hot chocolate with rum as well when you're up on the slopes. That's really quite rewarding. And afternoon tea being a massive thing as well. Yeah, you've worked hard. You've worked hard um, skiing down those moguls. So you're allowed to have that cake in the afternoon. <laughs> Definitely. So you are incredibly um, fit, aren't you? Didn't you recently do a challenge that resulted in you having quite a bad accident? Yeah, no, I was. I was very fit. Half of the reason why I used to do so much exercise, I think when you have a hotel and we live on site, is that you don't have a second to yourself. As soon as you step out that door, you see things that need doing. You see, I, I'm five meters away from the hotel, so I can see the garden and I do the garden, so I can see how much weeding, et cetera, needs to be doing. So I did a lot and a lot and a lot of big events. And my thing was endurance. Um, I love endurance events and I'm not a sprinter, but I can keep on going. So I had um, last year, last May, um, May the 12th, I had an endurance event, which wasn't a serious event for me. I was doing it as a training run because in later on in the year, I was doing Land's End to John O'Groats. So it was a cycle race and it was a 300 kilometer cycle race, but over two days. So 
I wasn't worried about it at all. Uh, first day went absolutely fine because I wasn't racing it. It was all very relaxed. I've done like the Etape de Tour de France before. So I've done some, you know, some big, big races before. Uh, so this was all very relaxed. I had a really good night's sleep. I was um, 50 kilometers um, before the end of the race on the second day. I had eaten properly fueled at a fueling station. I always, because I do endurance, I always fuel myself properly. And then we do not know. I was out, um, I was unconscious for about 20 minutes. They have worked out. I've got memory loss of, I was five days in hospital. I've got memory loss of at least 15 days. And then after that, my memory comes in and out. Um, I had really bad um, concussion, um, fractured my spine just below my neck. So I was incredibly lucky and sort of damaged on my shoulder, but didn't break, damaged on my face, but didn't break. Um, so yes, <laughs> that was my biking race. So you don't know how it happened. Does anyone know how it happened? No, I was... I was at the time, um, the rest of my team had stopped at the feeding station to have coffee and I was fine. So I was going ahead and I was absolutely fine. The first people who found me, thank goodness, was a nurse and a fireman who were also racing. Now, when the police came, I couldn't speak. They held my hand. So I would squeeze their hand to answer what had happened. They asked me if I'd been hit by a car and I answered yes. But no witnesses, and I have no idea. I've got no memory at all of it. So, Gosh, that must be really disorienting, losing five days of your life. I, do you know, that hasn't worried me. It hasn't. It's never upset me. A lot of people have said that. Has that really upset you? And no, that hasn't upset me. Concussion, I mean, thank goodness now it has come more into the highlights in the press with some, um, some you know, famous people getting concussed because it is, and I think it depends where you get concussed as to what part of the brain um, will it affect. But where I was concussed mostly is sort of around my eye in that, the front of my head, the forehead. Um, and that just, that affected me mentally. It was, it's the most horrific feeling ever. And if somebody wanted to break my leg, break my leg, do never, never, ever, ever concuss me again like that. Why, why, why? what was the feeling? You are not yourself. You are very, very scared. Um, I, and I don't agree with this. I'm not this type of person at all. And I'm telling people because I think people need to be aware. I was very suicidal had no idea why, had no control of my brain at all. I could talk, but it felt as though all my words were coming out of the back of my head, not out of my mouth. And you sound okay now. I mean, physically, mentally, how, how are you recovered? How recovered are you? Up now, absolutely fine. It took, um, I reckon it took nine months. I never had acute headaches that some people with concussion get really bad headaches. I was lucky that I didn't have that. It was just mentally for me, it was very, very difficult. Um, just lost all my confidence, couldn't cope with seeing anybody, couldn't cope with people around me. And I run a hotel, so I'm so used to people and I love people, but couldn't walk into the hotel at all. So I was very lucky. My husband gave me um, the whole of the summer, last summer off. He said, look, you don't work at the hotel, you're to get yourself better. So I was able to work at home. Um, 
at the time we had invested in the house in Provence. So I was able to work on the house in Provence and getting all the furniture and getting all that sorted out. Um, now, um, because I think I haven't used my brain for a year properly, my brain doesn't work as well as it used to. So, for example, if you told me four figures, like if, say the PIN code of my cards, I can't remember the PIN codes of my cards. I have to have them written down. If you told me your name quickly, I would have to really, really think about remembering your name. Where that's not me. I, you know, I, I'm a hotelier. I could always remember everybody's name. It sounds to me like you've had a, you've been, and you still are, thankfully, you've regained that spirit, but you've been very brave and very adventurous and really grabbed life, you know, grabbed it and held on. Do you think that growing up with two terminally ill siblings and also losing your mum early has, has shaped that personality? Definitely. You can't, there's no point looking back at the past. There's no point reliving what you've done, except except the good things, except the nice things, obviously. But you have to live each day and you have to take each day as it comes. And um, the, the accident was on May the 12th, which is my mother's birthday. Ah. So I think I think mum was going, right, I'm not going to kill you, <laughs> but you've got, to, you've got to slow down. So I'm going to I'm going to damage you a little bit. So it gives you time to think and adjust yourself in life. So what is the future? You don't look back. You've still got chili powder in Morzine and now you are sitting in what sounds like a beautiful house in Provence, which sounds like an absolute dream for many of us. What is what is the future? What is the plan now for you? So the, the Paul, again, he is just, he's heaven, thank God. And he's been just so um, gracious in saying, Francesca, right, we have spent 17 years building up the hotel, we've got a manager, we've got a staff manager. You are there to be in the hotel, to come and be with the guests and talk to the guests, but not to be ironing sheets or cleaning bedrooms or doing all the bits and pieces that sometimes you have to do because, you know, you want everything to be absolutely perfect. We've got managers to do that. So now, um, so for the summer, um, not for the summer, for last winter, I took the winter off as well. So the summer I was ill, so couldn't do anything last summer. Last winter I took the winter off as well. So I was in and out with guests, becoming a wonderful mother that I never had time to be, cooking bread, doing all the things that I wanted to do. And then it got to um, confinement. And confinement, I just cooked, 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 cooked for the children, cooked, cleaned, cooked and cleaned. And at the end of confinement, I said to Paul, I went, oh, my God, all the time, all these years, I've said that, oh, I wish that I was a full-time mother and didn't work. I've lied. That's complete and utter rubbish. I love my children, but I don't love cleaning up after them the whole time. I would love to set Provence up as a bed and breakfast and um, run Provence in the summer and in the interseason as a bed and breakfast and go back to um, chefing how I used to chef before. So doing breakfasts, um, making everything, making the granola, making the breads, um, obviously buying in the croissants, making my own jams, doing all that. So that's what's happening now. I'm running Provence as a bed and breakfast. Paul and the managers will run the hotel 
I'll be backwards and forwards. Um, due to what has happened this year, I don't think we're going to open the hotel until August. We're not sure at the moment. We're just waiting for all the new rules and regulations. So I'll run Provence and Paul will run um, the hotel. And then when I'm back, I can just talk to guests and do all the nice stuff. Um, and yeah, and the town is in Cabriere d'Egg, um, which is a tiny, tiny town. Um, one side's Catholic, one side's Protestant, which is really rare in France to have um, to have that. And it's just it's just the most beautiful place. It sounds amazing. I honestly can't wait, and I hopefully hopefully I'll make it there one day. Before I ask you my last question, is there anything you think I've missed? Um, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, it is the main the main reason why we set up the hotel the way it is was because of going back to Ireland and me cooking in those private homes. Um, I didn't want to have a hotel. I wanted to have a family home where people could come and stay and feel as though they were at home and that if they wanted to come down for breakfast in their pyjamas, they could come down to breakfast in their pyjamas. Um, I wanted it to have the um, fire and health and safety of a hotel, but to have the feeling of a private home. Sounds absolutely perfect. So my last question is always about music, because to me and to many people, music and travel go very much hand in hand. So if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a special, a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and what is that memory? Oh, that's really unfair. This is you're talking to somebody with who's had concussion. So my brain does not work. Um, right. What song? Um, oh God, that, there are so many songs. Um, Stereophonics. My husband plays the guitar beautifully, and my brother with cystic fibrosis. His job was he used to sing in the bars in Morzine, and he's got the most had the most amazing husky voice. So salad. Um, so Stereophonics were a big part then. Yeah. Now that's really good. Tell me, tell me a memory of your brother if you can, if you do remember your brother singing in Morzine and if there was a particular song that stuck out oh can I scream up to my daughter and ask her she's got it yeah absolutely yeah Eloise what's Nick's song rule the world by take that take that yeah that was that was played at his funeral yeah, Nick used to sing that. I mean, Nick was had the most amazing voice. He 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 recorded one song, and his voice is so deep because the guitar on his and husky because the guitar on his lungs, and um, ruled the world was played. We had two live uh, somebody on the guitar, somebody singing at his funeral, um, playing that. And yes, it's it reminds me totally of my brother and will make me cry when I hear it. As Francesca mentioned, her brother Nick was a talented singer and musician and after we spoke she sent us this song of his. Because he wrote and recorded it himself, we have permission to play it. Here's Nick Curzon-Bavin with his song, Can't Stop the Rain. I'm sorry 
Stuff we used to do, but what I remember.